Welcome back to part two of the 24 Days of September Anniversary Edition. In case you missed last week, we are celebrating hitting the completion of the first year of Bag of Bones podcast. I had requested ideas from our listeners as to what type of episode you'd like to hear, and Instagram listener at RobertTaylor18's idea was chosen. The very first Bag of Bones podcast was released on September 24th of 2020, and he suggested doing a snippet of history from each day of the month, Bag of Bones style. So please keep in mind that these are just snippets. Just the basics of details will be offered so we don't slip into a part three. It was very difficult to have to choose which details to leave out and save for another day. But hopefully, you'll forgive me the brevity. So if you didn't catch last week's episode of the first 13 days of September for a multitude of different years, you may want to start there. But if you're ready, we'll pick up where we left off, September 14th in the year 1982. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. James Stewart, beloved actor who starred with Grace Kelly, Princess of Monaco, in Rear Window, said at her eulogy, quote, You know, I just love Grace Kelly, not because she was a princess, not because she was an actress, not because she was my friend, but because she was just about the nicest lady I ever met, end quote. Grace Kelly, who was known for her leading lady roles in movies such as To Catch a Thief, High Society, and of course Rear Window, and The Country Girl, in which she won an Academy Award, but also because she gave it all up for love. She met Prince Rainier III of Monaco at the Cannes Film Festival in 1955. For the prince, it was love at first sight, and he aggressively pursued her. Less than a month later, the two were engaged and less than a year later, they would be married. She had to choose to give up her career as an actress because, as the prince would adamantly remind her, princesses were not actresses. She kept her toe in the arts, though, by establishing her Princess Grace Foundation that supports artisans, young children, and the arts. In 1975, she founded the Princess Grace Academy, which was the school of the Monte Carlo Ballet. She also was able to participate in a documentary that won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. She served as the narrator for the film, The Children of Theatre Street. In April of 1956, her family went with her to Monaco to celebrate the wedding to a man she barely knew. A wedding that would put anything they could create in Tinseltown to shame. They participated in both a civil ceremony and a religious ceremony. The elegant wedding was said to be watched by over 30 million viewers on television. The couple had three children, Caroline, born in January of 1957, Albert, heir to the throne, was born in March of 1958, and Stephanie was born in February of 1965. Grace Kelly stayed busy with her philanthropic endeavors serving as the patron of the Red Cross of Monte Carlo, the Garden Club, the International Arts Foundation, 
honorary member of the La Leche League, and the Rainbow Coalition Children, which was an orphanage run by American star Josephine Baker. On September 13, 1982, Princess Grace was driving from their family's residence with her daughter Stephanie along a twisty, turny road. Suddenly, the car began to swerve across the center lane, and when it sped toward the hairpin turn aptly named Devil's Curse, the car did not even attempt to make the turn, but drove through the stone barrier and off the cliff. The car plummeted down the 120-foot mountainside. Amazingly, the vehicle was brought to a stop by a tree where 17-year-old Stephanie was able to pry herself from the wreck. A local gardener rushed to the wreckage and busted out the back window in order to remove the unconscious princess. The youngest daughter survived with cuts, bruises, and a hairline fracture to her cervical vertebrae. The American movie icon and beloved Princess of Monaco never regained consciousness, suffering massive internal injuries. It was determined that she suffered a stroke while she was driving, which led to her losing control of the car. She was pronounced dead on September 14th when Prince Rainier opted to take her off life support. She was buried in the family vault. Over 400 people attended her private funeral. The prince would never remarry and was buried beside her at his death in 2005. Robert Chambliss, Thomas Blanton, Bobby Frank Cherry, and Herman Cash got away with murder for decades. They took the lives of four young ladies when the civil rights debates were at their highest. In the 1960s, Birmingham, Alabama was commonly referred to as Bombingham due to the rise of rebellion to the desegregating of the state and the nation. By September of 1963, this was the way those against the idea of desegregation chose to handle their displeasure. Martin Luther King Jr., speaking to the President John F. Kennedy, said, quote, I am sure that you are aware of the fact that more bombings of churches and homes have taken place in Birmingham than any other city in the United States, and not one of these bombings over the last 15 to 20 years has been solved. In fact, some 28 have taken place in the last 8 to 10 years, and all of those bombings remain unsolved. End quote. The 16th Street Baptist Church was an integral part of the desegregation movement of the 1960s. Being built in 1911, the large, strong, solid building would be the communal location for meetings, discussions, and planning central for many of the major, nonviolent protests scheduled for the African American community. Many protest marches began on the actual steps of this Baptist church. On September 15th of 1963, the congregation at the 16th Street Baptist Church lost four of their valuable members. It was Youth Day, which meant that the children's church would be combined with the adult church. The attendees milled around prior to the service, greeting one another, shaking hands, getting caught up with the week's worth of chatter. In the basement of the church, the younger version of the congregation was doing the same thing. But just prior to taking their seats and the organ humming to life, the foundation suddenly rumbled and screams of terror replaced words of praise. The bomb that was placed under the main stairs of the entrance went off by spraying bricks and mortar outward while the interior of the east side caved in. Parishioners fled the destruction through clouds of smoke and dust. Several were injured, but not all were so lucky. Fourteen-year-old Addie Mae Collins, 
11-year-old Cynthia Wesley, 14-year-old Denise McNair, and 14-year-old Carol Robinson were found buried beneath the rubble, dead. 10-year-old Susan Collins was permanently blinded, losing her right eye. The deaths of the four children infuriated the nation, black and white citizens alike, and escalated the attention to the struggle for civil rights in the South. Martin Luther King Jr. expressed his concern, quote, If you walk the street, you aren't safe. If you stay at home, you aren't safe. There is a danger of a bomb. If you're in church now, it isn't safe. So that the Negro feels that everywhere he goes, if he remains stationary, he is in danger of some physical violence. End quote. Suspects were well known within the local law enforcement offices all the way up to the FBI, but nothing was done. No charges were brought against any individuals for years. Finally, in 1977, Robert Chambliss, a well-known Klan leader, was put on trial and convicted of murder using evidence that FBI had in their possession since 1965, but did nothing with it to offer justice to the families of the victims. Chambliss professed his innocence until his death while in prison in 1985. The case was reopened in 1980, 1988, and again in 1977, but it wasn't until 2001 that Thomas Blanton was brought to trial and 2002 for Bobby Frank Cherry. Both were handed life sentences. As for Herman Cash, he passed away in 1994, not being held accountable for his participation in the deaths of the children from the Baptist Church bombing. Let's go back even further to another bombing incident, this one in New York City. It's September 16, 1920, when a horse-drawn carriage tentatively makes its way through a bustling Wall Street, alive with honking automobiles, hungry pedestrians on their way to one diner or another. The horse, unflustered by all the commotion, is patiently tugged to pull to the side in front of the USSA office, which is across the street from the New York Stock Exchange building, as the driver jumped from the cart and quickly disappeared into the throngs of the passers-by. A minute passes by, another, three, maybe four minutes tick by in slow motion before the contents of the carriage, 100 pounds of explosive, detonates and sends wood, metal, and human fragments in all directions, and I guess horse bits would have been included as well. Thirty people died immediately due to the close proximity of the wagon, with many others passing away the same day and in the days following from mortal injuries. More than 300 suffered minor injuries from the blast. Cars were turned over, buildings were damaged, lives destroyed. What was so important that the driver needed to inflict this kind of carnage to bring attention to his cause? What message was he trying to give to the people of New York? No one knows. Despite the hard investigative work of both the NYPD and the early version of our FBI, the best they could do was reconstruct the bomb, its fuses, and detonation devices. Nothing extraordinary or unique. And the hundreds of witnesses could give no solid leads. If they had to guess, the team was leading towards a small group of Italian anarchists claiming to want justice for some political prisoners. However, their plan was not very thought out. No one knew who they were, what exactly they wanted, and no one followed up claiming the destruction. The Wall Street bombing still remains a mystery today. 
Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougeret-Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seat, Bag of Bones, Total Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit. September 17th, 1862. This day is the anniversary for the deadliest one-day battle in all of the Civil War. Antietam. Union General George McClellan makes our list once again, this time facing off against Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Antietam was a pivotal battle that required a victory for both sides. Prior to meeting up on the outskirts of Sharpsburg, Maryland, Lee's battle plans to cross the Potomac and push into the Northern Territory for the first time were discovered and his tactics of divide and conquer were in serious jeopardy. Meanwhile, McClellan needed this victory to rebound from several Union defeats. President Lincoln desperately needed a win to be able to release the Emancipation Proclamation and have a solid foundation on which to rebuild from it. A Union win at Antietam would provide, in theory, all of those things. By the time the two armies faced off across a 30-acre cornfield, Lee managed to spread his troops out, making his number look larger. But even though they looked menacing, the soldiers themselves were tired, hungry, and sickly. The Union began the battle with the first fire, and the bloody siege commenced. The distance between the two armies closed quickly as the hand-to-hand combat would create the bulk of the warfare. Before the sun set that day, thousands upon thousands would lose their lives. The 12-hour battle would claim over 3,600 lives and more than 23,000 injured. The defeat of the Confederate Army was sound. The following day, as each claimed their dead and regrouped, Robert E. Lee began moving his troops back toward Virginia and McClellan allowed it. McClellan believed that he accomplished his mission of halting a Confederate victory on Union soil giving his president the leverage he needed, which he did release the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd. However, by not pursuing Lee's retreating army and finishing them, lost McClellan his command. Because of his leniency to the enemy, the history books would call the bloodiest 12-hour battle a stalemate, but the events that followed would give every indication that it was a Union win. The outcome of Antietam changed the course of the Civil War that day. The Confederate Army became boxed in, unable to resupply their troops. Lincoln did win the next election. Slaves were freed in the rebel states. European forces declined to get involved. And, for the first time, photographer Alexander Gardner's photographs of the bloody battle were released to the public, showing the world the very real, very graphic, unromanticized side of the war. Side note, it was President Lincoln himself that went to see McClellan to tell him personally, in detail, how he was disappointed in McClellan's telltale cautious strategies instead of taking aggressive action against Lee's command. It was also McClellan who ran against Lincoln, suddenly deciding that politics would be more to his liking. He resigned his commission taking an anti-war stand for his platform, and set out campaigning. But the people were enamored with Lincoln, following a string of Union wins, and believed the war was almost over. Lincoln won by a large gap. The railroad was the biggest employer and moneymaker following the end of the Civil War. 
But in order to make a ton of money from the railroad industry, you had to first invest a ton of money into the railroad industry. So many banks were teetering close to the edge of bankruptcy and financial freedom on a regular basis. In 1869, the very first transcontinental railroad was completed. 35,000 miles of track were laid across the country connecting the East Coast to the West Coast. The next big railroad adventure was to be the Northern Pacific. One firm decided that it was going to take the lead, J. Cook and Company. They poured money into the venture and encouraged other banks to do the same. However, on September 18, 1873, J. Cook and Company had to come forward with a secret they'd been keeping. They had overextended and were no longer able to fulfill their financial obligations. They declared bankruptcy. And, as often happens, other banks were forced to do the same. In fact, two days later, the New York Stock Exchange locked its doors, creating the worst financial panic so far in history. Before it was all over, more than 18,000 businesses failed. 89 of the railroad businesses slipped into bankruptcy, and the unemployment had risen to 14%, leading to wage cuts, poor working conditions, and then workers' strikes. President Grant was just leaving office and handing over the dirty laundry to his successor, Rutherford B. Hayes, who had to use military force to try and get things back in order. There is so much more to this story and its impact on an era, but that's just going to have to wait for a full episode. Just know that September 18th began the domino drop for the Great Financial Panic of 1873. On the evening of March 1st, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of aviator Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was kidnapped from his nursery window on the second floor of their home, and a note demanding a $50,000 ransom was found on the windowsill. Thirteen notes later, raising and lowering the ransom, a final sum of the $50,000 was agreed to and was paid to a man who called himself John. The liaison between the kidnappers and the Lindberghs, Dr. John Condon, was told that the child would be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The two then parted ways. The search for the child was unsuccessful, and the kidnapper got away with the gold certificates that were used to fulfill the ransom demand. On May 12, 1932, the body of the kidnapped Lindbergh child was found by accident, partially buried badly decomposed, and only about four miles from the Lindbergh home. The body had been mutilated, and the cause of death was a blow to the head. They believed that he had been dead for about two months, which means he had been killed almost immediately. The bargaining chip that the Lindberghs would get their child back alive had been a lie from the very beginning. There were thousands of leads to filter through in attempting to discover the kidnapper, now killer, to bring him to justice. A reward of $25,000 was offered to valuable information that would lead to the apprehension and conviction of the villain. There were many who attempted to give fraudulent statements in an attempt to collect the reward money, and even though the FBI followed up on every lead, very few were fruitful. Finally, the New York City Bureau Office got a break. Through their patience and diligence, they finally started seeing patterns with the gold certificates. They followed the money. 
A gas station on the corner of 127th and Lexington Avenue would report that a man had come to his station frequently in recent weeks and paid with $10 gold certificates. He was suspicious of the bill, so he wrote down the license plate number of the car. The license plate was registered to Bruno Hauptmann. The police began a surveillance of the home, and on September 19, 1934, the man who identified himself as John was in police custody. Bruno Hauptmann was a 35-year-old German carpenter who had been living in the United States for about 11 years with his wife and son. It was discovered that he had a criminal history of robbery and had even done some prison time. He was successfully identified by Dr. Condon and admitted to spending the gold ransom certificates on several items. A bonus, $13,000 in the gold certificates were discovered hidden away in the Hauptmann garage. Before the date of the kidnapping, he struggled to find work as a carpenter, but miraculously after March, he began to trade stocks and would never work again. The trial began in January of 1935 and lasted five weeks. He was charged with extortion and murder. On February 13, 1935, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree with the death sentence. On April 3, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., Bruno Hauptmann was electrocuted for the kidnapping and murder of the Charles Lindbergh baby. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, We'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. She was born on this date, September 20th, 1880, to a respectable, wealthy family in Bienville, Louisiana. Her father was a newspaper publisher. Lofi Louise Pressler was offered a good education, but was a little too wild and sexually promiscuous for the school's reputation and was encouraged to find other arrangements. She did. She decided to marry a traveling salesman in 1903, which took them to Dallas, Texas. The marriage ended in tragedy when her husband committed suicide after discovering his wife in bed with another man. She sold all of his belongings to be able to get her to Shreveport, Louisiana. Here, she switched gears to be a career woman, prostitute. She found that she could make even more money by offering house calls and stealing from her clients and their missing wives, selling off her loot except for the pieces she chose to keep. She took her trade to Boston, but there her thieving ways were discovered, so before capture, She escaped to Waco, Texas, where she met wealthy oil baron Joe Appel. He was found murdered, and she was accused, but somehow convinced a jury that it was in self-defense. So much so that they applauded her bravery as she left the courthouse, completely overlooking the fact that she also robbed him blind in the process. In 1913, she tried marriage once again to a hotel clerk. This was Harry. He too committed suicide after discovering his wife was having an affair. He hung himself in the basement of the hotel. Somehow, she ended up in Denver, Colorado, where she married husband number three, Richard. 
He was a door-to-door salesman, and together they had a daughter a year into the marriage. But she became bored and moved to Los Angeles. There, while looking for a place to rent, she met Jacob. Louise was smitten with this one. They spent the first few weeks of their affair locked up in their rental house, where she asked him to marry her. He declined, and suddenly went missing in 1920. Louise was able to keep the curious satisfied for a time, months actually, but when Jacob still didn't return home from the peculiar places she claimed him to be, and Louise was throwing lavish parties and spending a good deal of his money, his lawyer became more aggressively suspicious. Louise would go back to her husband, trying to avoid the scrutiny of said lawyer, but the body of Jacob was discovered in the basement of his home under fresh dirt, with a bullet in his head. And then, despite her pleading and charming, in 1921, she was sentenced to life in prison for murder. How many are we up to? You'd think, being behind bars, that the male population would be safe, but no, oh no. Richard commits suicide while she's in prison soon after his letters to her remain unanswered. It was said that she liked to boast of the power she had over men. She would claim that Richard was her favorite story, that prison walls couldn't even contain her fatal charm. She was released from prison after only 18 years, thanks in part to social worker Margaret Logan. She changed her name to Anna Lee and found satisfaction from working at the Servicemen's World War II Canteen in 1942. Here, a woman she was living with and caring for mysteriously dies. Well, not so much mysteriously. She was elderly, but no one mentioned it. It was never reported. So when they came to ask Anna Lee if she knew anything, she was able to tell them that her friend had fallen and died from her injuries. The woman was elderly. The explanation seemed plausible, and Anna Lee, having no criminal record, they accepted the story. Her line of work changes once again to the housekeeping industry. Hmm. Louise is then hired by Margaret Logan. This was the woman who believed in her and helped her to secure her parole and the first job. Soon after Louise moves into their home to help with housekeeping, Margaret mysteriously disappears. Louise managed to convince Margaret's husband, Arthur, that she had been taken to the hospital after a serious fall and was so sick she is unable to receive visitors. In the middle of her meddling, she marries an older bank manager, Lee, in 1944. (laughs) Are you keeping up with all of this? By late June, Margaret has been dead, um, I mean, missing, for about 30 days, and the husband, Arthur, was starting to get annoyingly suspicious. Louise was able to convince authorities that Arthur was insane, and somehow they believed it. He was committed to a state hospital, where he died only six months later. She and husband Lee moved into the former employee benefactor's home. While here, her husband questioned a bullet hole in the wall and a mound of fresh earth in the backyard, but it was the insurance policy naming Louise as the full beneficiary of both husband and wife, he didn't have a chance to come forward because her parole officer came to his own conclusions and called the police to inspect the home. Following another of Louise's colorful stories that obviously explained all of the things, she was taken into custody 
with poor husband Lee booked as an accessory. Lee Judson was acquitted on January 12, 1945. On January 13th, he jumped to his death from the 13th floor of an office building. Louise, the story goes, smiled when she heard the news. Louise Pressler Bostley Farut Pete Judson was convicted of murder and forgery and sentenced to death. There would be no more appeals, no more stories. On April 11, 1947, by way of the gas chamber, she became one of only four women to be executed at San Quentin State Prison. She was 66 years old. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. It began on September 9th as just a storm near the Cape Verde Islands. This would become more than just a storm. No one suspected anything more as the skies betrayed nothing so sinister. But what was thought to be a slow rolling fog was actually 30-foot waves dancing above the warm waters of the Gulf with no intention of being slowed down by the cold current of the North Atlantic. It was believed that this untamed storm would hit Florida with the force it was creating, but ended up taking a sharp turn toward the eastern seaboard. So while the southern states braced for impact, boarding up doors and windows, stocking up on bread and milk, the east coasters were still out and about fishing in their personal boats and swimming along the shoreline. As it moved along the eastern seaboard, it would grow into a Category 5 hurricane that would hit Long Island and southern New England on September 21, 1938. It hit around 2 in the afternoon with full wrath, gulping and pushing waves up to 40 feet tall onto the area, swallowing the coastal homes into its depths along with those seeking shelter inside them. Traveling at a rate of 47 miles per hour, With wind gusts reaching 185, the storm produced water surges of 17 feet and peak waves measuring over 50 feet in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Unsuspecting communities were flooded when the waters overflowed the riverbanks and spewed out onto the residential areas, devouring roads, automobiles, homes, businesses, and the residents. But this hurricane wasn't finished yet. It made a second landfall in southern Connecticut as a Category 3, with winds around 115 miles per hour. As far as New York City, the storm raged on, bringing the water levels up an additional 7 feet in the harbor, and recorded winds at 120 miles at the Empire State Building. It barely slowed down as it moved through the American borders into Canada and knocked them down a few notches as well. And then, 
It finally quieted and disappeared back into the ocean by midnight, leaving shock and disbelief and over $300 million in damage. The carnage was swift and severe. Between 400 and 800 lives were lost. It tore up full orchards, pulled up railroad tracks, disassembled bridges, destroyed more than 20,000 miles of telephone lines, shredded homes, launched boats, and not in a good way. The enormous five-masted ship named Marsala, for example, was pushed into a warehouse that started a massive fire that doubled down on the destruction by engulfing the city's business district. Many coastal homes, marinas, businesses, and yacht clubs were destroyed, washing away into the violent surging rivers forcing their way out of their banks. The hurricane flooded every state along the coast and damaged some of the oldest cities of America, taking many of the historical buildings with it. Side note, the storm destroyed so many trees, the local paper mills took nine years to process them all. Waste not, want not. President Franklin Roosevelt used this opportunity to give his creation of the Civilian Conservation Corp and the Works Progress Administration to put hundreds to work. It took them two years, 50 CCC camps, and 15,000 WPA workers to complete the job. The young 21-year-old Yale University graduate was led to the gallows with his head held high. Hands bound behind his back, the noose was slipped around his neck as he was turned to face his aggressors on enemy territory. A British officer that witnessed the event would say about the execution, quote, He was calm and bore himself with gentle dignity in the consequences of rectitude and high intentions, end quote. It is early morning on September 22nd, 1776. When British General William Howe asks if the lad has any last words, Legend says that Nathan Hale would stand tall and say, quote, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. End quote. Nathan Hale was born in Coventry in 1755, but once he graduated from Yale, he became a schoolteacher. In 1775, he joined the Connecticut militia and participated in the Siege of Boston. He then joined the Continental Army and was promoted to captain. When the British captured New York City during the Battle of Long Island, Hale volunteered to go behind enemy lines to report on the British maneuvers and strategies. On September 21st, as Hale was trying to get back to his home camp, he, along with 200 others, were captured. According to a British officer that was permitted to enter the camp with information on Hale, his details were documented by Captain William Hull of the Continental Army. He writes, quote, in a few days, an officer came to our camp under a flag of truce and informed Hamilton that Captain Hale had been arrested, condemned as a spy, and executed that morning. He said that Captain Hale had procured sketches of the fortifications and made memoranda of their number and different positions. When apprehended, he was taken before Sir William Howe and these papers, found concealed about his person, betrayed his intentions. End quote. British officer Frederick McKenzie witnessed the hanging and wrote in his diary, quote, He behaves with great composure and resolution, saying he thought it the duty of every good officer to obey any orders given to him by his commander-in-chief, and desired the spectators to be at all times prepared to meet death in whatever shape it might appear, end quote. 
The British officer also added, quote, Captain Hale alone, without sympathy or support, on the approach of death asked for a clergyman to attend him. It was refused. He then requested a Bible that, too, was refused by his inhumane jailer, end quote. Hale's body was never recovered. His bold sacrifice has been honored by postage stamps, a statue or two, and the Dove Tavern, one of three places that claim the location of the execution, still stands to tell the story of Connecticut's official state hero. What do small, commonly used items, textiles, microfilm, RKO newsreels, life magazines, a Sears and Roebuck catalog, cigarettes, and a selection of seeds all have in common? These were some of the items put inside the time capsule that was presented and buried in the 1939 World's Fair in New York City on September 23rd. To the people of the future, we leave this legacy, it reads. When the capsule was inspired and created, the nation was coming out of the worst depression in our history and on the verge of entering World War II. The United States is clearly a nation of resiliency, a nation of hope, a nation that consistently works toward a better tomorrow. And as a glimpse of where the future came from, these carefully selected items show how we believed in 1939 and that we were at the top of our economic, scientific, and cultural game. So the 800-pound tube of Kapoloi was created and ceremoniously tucked 50 feet underground with the promise to be re-revealed in 5,000 years. The definitive words on the fair's motto speaks of hope, technology, and creativity for all of our tomorrows. It read, Here are the materials, ideas, and forces at work in our world. These are tools with which the world of tomorrow must be made. End quote. And they had. To think, not even 100 years into the future, much less 5,000 years, so much has changed. We have taken those words to heart, so much so that many of the items enclosed inside the capsule are now obsolete, including the actual record and microfilm that assumed to communicate with the future discoverers. Where are these people 5,000 years from 1939 going to find a record player? I digress. Someday. It will be rediscovered and will give the discoverer a glimpse in time of what life looked like in the 1930s. In case the capsule is forgotten, a book of record has been dispersed worldwide and tucked away in safe locations such as libraries, museums, and even monasteries. This will help provide clues as to the location and key of sorts of the bullet-shaped capsule with the glass center. We have no way of knowing what our world will look like 50 centuries into the future, what our technology will be, what clothes we will wear, language we will speak. Will the fountain pen be as unrecognizable to our future selves as the rotary phone is to today's youth? Who knows? But a glimpse into history is waiting for rediscovery at some point, long, long into our future. And although none of us will be here to witness it, Hopefully you might take a brief moment to acknowledge the things and technology we have today, how far we've come, and what the future holds. What would you put into a 2020s capsule? 
September 24, 2020. American author Elizabeth Bougeret takes on the COVID-19 quarantine with creative gusto and marries her love of writing and history by creating a weekly podcast that looks at the dark side of American history. Episode 1, The Limp Mansion Goes Live. From there, she explores the stories that have been swept under the rug or omitted from our history books. Stories that are familiar, but perhaps forgotten. Stories of where we came from and things that have shaped our future. Stories of people, places, and things that feel so different from how we see it today. The haunted, the strange, the wicked, and the wild. All of these past episodes are still accessible to the curious. The Bag of Bones podcast captures the attention of the podcast fans and grows quickly in its first year. The consensus is that it will continue. Thank you so much for celebrating our first year of episodes as Bag of Bones podcast. It has been thrilling to say the least, watching the podcast grow as more and more people join in with the common denominators of America's dark past. I knew I couldn't be the only one. I couldn't have done it without you. Without you listening on the other side of the mic, I'd just be talking to myself. So thank you for giving Bag of Bones a chance. And thank you for sticking with me. I look forward to being with you every single week and to many, many more anniversaries. Our new season kicks off with eight episodes driven by listener requests. I hope you'll join us. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. On to season two. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt. But do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out.